Hello, cruel world, and welcome to the 100th episode Woo! of I Love This, You Should Too. Yay! I am one of your hosts, Indy, the faceless consumer Randawa, and with me is Samantha, giant baby he's. What? No. Because of the movie we're doing. Oh, okay. And there's a giant baby and a faceless... You had no problem with me being a faceless consumer? No. <laughs> so... We are at episode 100. Mm-hmm. Samantha, did you ever think we'd get this far? No. There's a lot of episodes. I was banking on it because how I name all the episodes, it's always been 001. Oh, Because so I was like, I know we're going to get to 100. Yeah. I don't think we're going to get to 1,000, though. That's where I drew the limit. Uh, 999 is our final episode. Yeah, and then we're going to stop. That sounds good. <laughs> as long as you have a plan. Well, for everyone who is joining us for the first time, I'm going to do a quick overview of how we do things. My dear co-host Samantha and I have very different tastes in movies, so we take turns picking something for the other one to watch. And in the in-between episodes, we do little reviews of our things of the week and introduce the episode. Mm-hmm. So last week, I told Samantha we are going to watch... Hayao Miyazaki's 2001 masterpiece, question mark, spirited it away. And it follows in the line of all of those great movies about girls of this age going down a hole to discover themselves and become women from Alice in Wonderland to Coraline to Pan's Labyrinth. Wow, that happens a lot. It does. It's a real theme. It's a coming of age theme. We're going to dissect this movie, go over the great characters, the takedown of capitalism, the blurred lines between good and evil, all of that fun stuff. But before we do that, I watched this for maybe just the third time in my life. I still love it. But the real question is, Samantha, I love this. Did you? I'm pretty close to a love. Pretty close. How close is that? Um, I'm like fractionally away from loving it. And I think that our conversation here might sway me into the love category. All right. Well, let's start off with what did you like about it? Um, I really enjoy all of these characters. I liked um, Chihiro or Sen. Mm-hmm. Was that her name? Um, Both, yeah. I like Chihiro slash Sen. She was very cute. And I like that they didn't make her more mature for her age. She seems like, I think she's 10-ish, yeah. But she seems like that. She's not unnecessarily precocious like we get a lot of children in movies being, like they're wise beyond their years. Yeah. She seems like a kid. Yeah. And I liked that a lot. Um, I also liked Lynn, who was like a very nice, kind, guiding kind of force in her life, like a big sister almost. Mm-hmm. And then the um, the like evil in this movie was still very fun. Okay, we'll get into all of that mm. because whether or not there actually is good and evil in this movie or if everything lives in those shades of gray, like the real world. Yeah. Although there was probably some straight up evil people in the world. There is. There is. There always is. I thought you were going to start listing them. And then one of them will be listening right now and be like, wait, what did I do? (laughs) You know what you did, Steve. You know what you did. (laughs) I bet there's one guy named Steve that listens. Hopefully. Well, now you are on your second Miyazaki movie. I got you to watch My Neighbor Totoro a bunch of episodes ago. So now I want to ask you, like, do you get... Maybe not necessarily agree, but do you understand where I'm coming from when I say that I think Miyazaki is the single best animated filmmaker and I actually prefer the Studio Ghibli movies to Disney movies? Yeah, I can see where you're coming with that. I think it's it's a little bit more substantial. It's a little bit more kind of true to life, even though there's like this magical element to it. And I think that uh, it's more... I guess realistic is the word I keep coming back to, but like it feels like it could actually happen in the world, whereas like Frozen might not, you know. I heard it explained once in a very beautiful way, because I do love uh, a lot of Disney movies, especially the early 90s stuff. And I think there's a really good resurgence over the last 10 years. But somebody said that Disney movies touch the heart 
and Studio Ghibli movies touch the soul. Mm. And I thought that's quite appropriate for oh, a lot I like of these that. ones. Yeah, because like, I love Disney movies. I just can see that these are two very different kind of genres of children's movie. Yeah, definitely. And today we are recording from a hotel room because mm. our floors are being replaced. Yes. So we might hear a lot of police sirens, but just go with it. Just go with it. It's added background enjoyment for you. <laughs> And we're not going to go over the plot so much as much as we will analyze, but this is a spoiler zone. So if you haven't seen Spirited Away, go watch it right now. It's very, very good. Samantha almost loves it. Almost loves it. Welcome to the spoiler zone. (laughs) I liked it because this movie feels like there are very distinct emotional breaks. Mm -hmm. Not breaks in the sense that she breaks, but there's definite feels to it because we have... The whole beginning when she's getting acclimatized to the place, there's a real sense of actual dread. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a kid's movie, and I think you can watch it very young. But throughout most of it, when she first finds herself in the bathhouse and in the spirit world, I was very worried for her. And I've seen the movie. I know what's going on. But did you feel that kind of um, uneasiness, the sense of dread that she has? Yeah, when she's first kind of acclimatizing to this magical world, you definitely think that I felt her uncomfortableness and dread is a good word for it. And also just her struggle in trying to acclimatize so that she fit in. Yeah, I love quite early on there's that one scene where I think Lynn might be giving her something to eat and she just kind of curls up and cries a little bit. And I I really felt that that resonated Mm -hmm. with me. And I was going to say like, yeah, there's all these different emotional sections. And then now I'm thinking about it as, oh, those are just the act breaks. (laughs) (laughs) So this movie, as crazy as it is, and it is all over the place in a lot of ways, it follows that act structure much more closely than something like My Neighbor Totoro does, which Mm -hmm. is barely has a plot this one definitely does Mm -hmm. you have the beginning of this child who doesn't want to be there her parents take her kind of against her will that's our introduction then we have this big section where it's full of anxiety for the viewer and for Chihiro and then as Lin kind of teaches her some things and she gains the confidence from the the stink spirit that we'll get into later she then has some control over that world. And then in the final part where she is leaving the bathhouse and returning that gold stamp and the denouement after that. But each one has a very distinct feel through it. And I feel like we kind of, I guess every movie, you should feel like you're along the journey with the character. But this just uh, does it a little better than I think a lot of other movies do. Yeah, and this movie is so closely tied to Chihiro's emotions that you almost go on this like emotional roller coaster with her. I found myself like really kind of mirroring the feelings that she was having as mm. I was watching it, and it was very subtle in the way that they make you feel the emotions that she's feeling, but also like really enhances the movie. Yeah, like if you look at a Disney film that something even that I really like, like Aladdin. Mm-hmm. You get those songs and you see where they're coming from, but I don't feel as emotionally invested in the characters as I do in this one, I think. Mm-hmm. Although, Aladdin, still so good. <laughs> still very good. Well, let's talk about the first big theme of this movie, and that's just of uh, of growing up. Yeah. Because you get these movies a lot. I think when we're talking about Totoro, I talked about the idea of the shoujo, which is like the... You put it best in the words of Britney Spears last time, I think. Being not a girl, not Not yet yet a a woman. woman. Yes, that's right. Iconic. (laughs) There's a lot of characters of this age in Japanese literature and film more so than Mm -hmm. in American stuff. But this is the second or I guess third instance of this because we did watch The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, who's someone a little bit older, but still like more... Of a, the younger teen, more childlike than a right. real teenager. Yeah. And a lot of these movies and all those ones that I listed off the beginning, there's a lot of instances of girls going on a mystical adventure and then coming back more grown up. Mm-hmm. I do like this kind of, I don't know if it's, is it a genre of movie? I think so. It's definitely an element. Yeah. I enjoy this kind of 
feel of a movie because it definitely feels like something that you could have gone through as a child. When you get transported to a spirit world. Yeah. Tuesdays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the movies I pick are like 12 year old girls. I think because that's where my personality is split. It is like <laughs> older and darker in a lot of ways. But really, if you know me personally, a lot of the time I just act like a 12 year old girl. <laughs> and that's probably why I like Shihiro so much. So this one, it's a, it's much more direct than in something like Alice in Wonderland or maybe even Pan's Labyrinth because she's entering this whole new world and a lot of the responsibilities she's given or that are thrust upon her are those of an adult world. Right. So it's a really shocking transition for her. At the beginning, we see her being very, I don't want to say lazy because she's just in the back of a car. But she's idle, definitely. She's concerned with uh, childhood things. She's sad that she's leaving her friends. She's a little grumpy that she never got a lot of flowers for from her parents. Oh, yeah, that's right. I really like that beginning of her. It was cute. It and was she so did cute. seem very young. And she seemed so sad. Yeah. And that's like she was on the precipice of a big change. They were moving kind of to the country it seemed like mm-hmm. and she was gonna have to make all new friends and she was leaving her school and those are such kid things to worry about yeah and then suddenly she's thrust into this world where she has to worry about getting a job is the first thing she has to yeah. do so i think it is a pretty obvious allegory for growing up in that yeah. way and the effects of the adult world on someone who's coming from from childhood mm-hmm. and i know we've uh, we've felt that We're still working on it. (laughs) Yeah, we're still trying to be adults. I think what separates this movie from a lot of other ones that deal with the same thing in a somewhat magical way Mm -hmm. is that unlike, say, Harry Potter, she doesn't just have something intrinsically in her that makes her better than everyone else. Right. She works at it. That's the only way she gets through things is she's kind of clever and she works hard. And I, I, I did like that, too, because she could just be, like you said, Harry Potter's a good example because he has, like, a very humdrum life and then realizes that he's, like, extra special. Yes. And that makes him better than everyone who's been torturing him all his life. Yeah. And he isn't even someone like Hermione who is putting in the work. Yes. He just naturally is better than everyone. Yeah, so I think this is cool to watch because she is kind of just your everyday child who's going through a big life change and then automatically gets thrust into this adult world where she struggles. Mm -hmm. She does struggle through like the first half of the movie where she's like really not sure if she's gonna like survive it seems like. And I like that the thing that puts her over the top, the thing that allows her to accomplish all the things she's trying to do is just kind of her good spirit Mm -hmm. more than anything. It's just that she is caring. She's not caught up in the greed of this world, Mm -hmm. which we'll really get into later. (laughs) But she just kind of wants what's best for everyone. And when you're talking about it as a script, although this movie never had a script, that's not how Miyazaki works. Mm. He just kind of like makes a cartoon as he goes. That's wild. As an artist, like... In the ephemeral idea, I'm like, oh, that's so amazing. But as a filmmaker in the practical ideas, like that must be infuriating for everyone else. That would be <laughs> so hard to do. Everyone who's trying to like work alongside him. Yeah. yeah. That would be super, super infuriating. You just come to work and be like, what are we going to do today? Yeah. He always says like the movie just tells itself to him. He doesn't come in with any script. He just kind of <laughs> makes it as it goes. Um, but anyways, it sounds kind of wishy-washy to say like oh she's just good that's why she does everything better but when you watch it in a movie and it's pulled out over the two hours and things have the time to land and the characters have the time to develop Mm -hmm. it seems like a really like full thought out idea and that's kind of what separates her from a lot of the other characters in this as well is that she's the only person looking out for others not just herself Let's talk a little bit about the aesthetics of this movie and how it looks, because I truly feel that this is one of the most beautiful animated films ever made. Mm. What do you think? Um, I definitely liked the look of it. I liked that the magical world that she enters looks almost exactly like the regular world Mm -hmm. with like a few things. Like when um, Haku becomes that dragon 
puppy thing. Yep. And, you know, some of the characters look a little bit different from what you'd see in the normal world, but it wasn't, it wasn't completely different from what she's used to. So I think that adds like a little bit of comfort to the viewer who's watching because they're not having to like figure out what they're looking at. And it also makes it a little more uneasy and uncanny because there are some characters that are mostly human, but that they look different from how Chihiro is presented. And they're kind of frog-like. It seems mm-hmm. like there's so many people that are in varying degrees of frogness. Yeah, like You have straight up frogs, then you have talking frogs, then you have people with big mouths, and then you have people like Lin who are human but not quite as human as Chihiro is yeah and then you have Haku's human form but he looks much more like an old school anime character yeah he does actually and he looks like different from human yeah but he's the most human person other than I think Lin that he or that Chihiro meets right do you have a favorite set piece in this movie because there's a lot of really great ones and for everyone out there, when film losers like me say set piece, we're usually referring to something that is both a setting, but it's so remarkable that also plot elements revolve around it. So like there's a scene that's kind of set up just by seeing it, and then everything happens within that environment. Um, I really like the bridge. That was a great, because it is the literal transition, right? Yeah. And the bit before that, when she's still in what was the abandoned amusement park, and then it starts turning into the spirit world, and we get to see the shadows going through it and stuff. I really enjoyed that sequence. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And because it's such a transitionary piece, like, it's how she knows that the end, like, she's getting out of the spirit world and how she's coming into the spirit world. Right. You, It's very much like, okay, we're in a different place now. I also really enjoyed the giant bath because mm. one of her jobs is her and Lynn get stuck with cleaning the really big bath. And that's when we get that stink spirit sequence and all the little like gadgetry and machinery of putting the token on the string, pulling it and then pulling down that wall panel where the water comes out. Oh, yeah. All of that was really great. And when San is perched on the top of it, just like on her tiptoes trying to pull it down. All of that just felt very, very tangible to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely kind of drives home the fact that she is a child. Yes. Yeah. And she, she can't is reach anything. much too small to be doing this job. Yeah. Also down in the basement where Kamaji is working. I really liked that sequence too. Yeah. When we get to see the Soot Sprites, who we are familiar with from My Neighbor Totoro. Oh, yeah. That was a lot of fun. I love the bit where the coal falls on one of them. Yeah. And then she helps it. And then all the rest of them are like, wait a minute, we get it now. And then they drop the coal on themselves. So then she'll do the work. For yeah, them. exactly. That was that was actually really funny. To yeah. Me. I enjoyed that. And I liked when Kamaji is like, finish what you were doing, human. <laughs> yeah. Because she like, like a child would, was kind of like, oh, well, now that's it. So it's gone. So guess we're done here and he's like no you have to throw it in the fire yeah it's your job and just the shot of him with all of his many arms pulling all the things down and grinding the herbs and drinking tea and all of that that was just a a really cool looking one and there's drawers for like 40 feet up Mm -hmm. these walls full of the drawers with all the different herbs in it and that was kind of like our first view into this magical world that she'd kind of transitioned into yeah and at first it's very it's frightening but then the more we learn about the character he's not frightening at all no he seems very nice and kind of gives her the introduction into what the world she's just inhabited is yeah along with all of these really great set pieces where like every little corner has something going on Mm -hmm. it just seems so many of these shots are are very alive and not just because there's so many wacky characters throughout. Mm-hmm. There's just a, a great attention to detail. But I almost like those other moments better. There's these moments of kind of contemplative silence or that more meditate on a moment. They're not nearly as present as they are in Totoro, but they're they're here. 
you get a bunch of them when we are coming up to the mountain, when mm-hmm. the parents are driving before it starts going all crazy. We have that nice, subtle piano music, and we just get to kind of meditate on Chihiro's mood at that moment. So maybe I think that is why we feel like we're more aware of Chihiro's emotions and more attached to them than we are to some Disney characters, mm-hmm. which are, are great in their own, in their own way, but uh, differently done. Right. Because this takes time for moments to land. I talked about this uh, way back 90 episodes ago with Totoro, but there's the idea of ma, which is the Japanese word for emptiness mm. or silence. Miyazaki always talks about putting in these moments because if you just have all this excitement, like sure, it is going to stimulate a child and they're going to be along for the journey, but they're not going to retain things as much as if you show something and then give some time for that moment to land. Mm. And I think that's what we're experiencing as well, that we're identifying with Chihiro more because it's not just look at this crazy thing, look at this crazy thing. You have look at this crazy thing. And let's take a moment for her to react and us to go along with her reaction. Right. And I like those moments a lot. Later in the movie, we get some more of this. And I think maybe my favorite sequence, even though there's all these amazing things, like when No Face is eating everyone, when they're pulling the bikes out of that river spirit, one of my favorite bits is when they're going on the train and it's just really still and calm and the train's actually going through water, so it even adds another level of uh, of calmness to more calm than a train could ever be, right? Right. And you have no face and the baby and the bird who are now transformed, and they're just kind of riding the train out to Zaniba's place. Yeah. I loved that sequence so much, and I love that music with it. It was definitely a very calm sequence, and... The stuff that had happened before with no face eating everybody, it was definitely like a deep breath of just like relaxation almost. Yeah. And I think that's what makes me love Miyazaki's movies just a step above. Mm -hmm. Because if you took that out, this would be a great movie because of all those great characters and the action within the bathhouse. But for me, what elevates it to that level of not just being like, oh, that was a fun cartoon I watched, to being like a great it sounds, I always sound pretentious, so why do I even apologize? But to make it like a great work of art is that extra level that he's able to add on. And that separates it from a lot of cartoons which you'll watch and are enjoyable, but you might not end up thinking about for, for years to come. Like hmm. this movie sits with me. Right. Like when spooky things happen to her, they're not undercut by a joke like you would see in so many other cartoons. Rather, you get the silence or you get a shot of her crying and you have to deal with these emotions just like she has to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it's so much more affecting in that way. Just aesthetically speaking on how they look, did you have a favorite character design? Because there's so many great and interesting characters in this. Um, I think I liked Zaniba and Yubaba. Oh, really? Because so many elements, and like they're twins, so many elements can be kind of scary or be more grandmotherly and like comforting. Right. So it was really cool to see them exactly the same, except for like their tone of voice. But also... Like you can you can pick and see the things that make Yubaba scary, but they're very similar to the things that make uh, Zenaba like grandmotherly and comforting. Yeah, and that's a theme in all the movie a lot that the looks are not always as they seem mm-hmm. because a big baby can be very menacing. Yeah, and a grandmother could be either terrifying or comforting depending yeah. on it, everything isn't just based in in the looks of it. Yeah, so I liked I liked that. I like Yubaba and Zaniba just because you can really like study their character and kind of see how their traits make them very different but also very similar. I loved there's like three kind of big giant duck characters or like chicks. Do you mm. remember them? Yeah, kind of, yeah. I thought they were hilarious. They're always just kind of in the background. They walk in on the bridge in the beginning and then you can see them cheering sometimes. They were really great. But I think the character design of No Face is probably my favorite. I think it's very cool. Very creepy. Have we seen him before? 
No, No Face is a unique creation for this movie. Oh. A lot of these other ones are kind of based in folklore, mostly uh, Japanese Shinto stuff, but some other places as well. There is a big blend going on. But as far as I can tell, not being an expert in that kind of stuff by any means, No Face is a Miyazaki creation. Okay. It just seemed kind of familiar, but I like it. I think that style of mask is a traditional mask i don't know if it's kabuki or what it is Hmm, okay so i think that type of aesthetic is is familiar and he's definitely drawing on inspiration from from traditional stuff but that whole character is is unique i'm 90 percent sure if i'm wrong write in and tell me about it how'd you feel about the giant baby i found it very creepy (laughs) super scary yeah i did not enjoy that character i feel like this movie could have been without that character I ended up liking it because I like where the baby goes and gets transformed into the little mouse and then prefers it. Mm-hmm. And and learns. He's less of an asshole after that. Right. I pretty much agree with you. I could have done without the giant baby. <laughs> I liked the design of Haku's river spirit dog dragon a lot. There was the sequence when she was making him swallow that uh, gift fruit or whatever it is, the medicine, and she's holding his mouth closed. And it was both like terrifying, but also you were on his side too. And just the animation of that was great. And I know you haven't seen many Miyazaki's yet, but I think this might be his best. It's not my favorite because I like Totoro and I have a really soft spot for Kiki's Delivery Service and Porco Rosso, which aren't regarded as as good but i love them (laughs) but this one seems to be like the culmination of so many animation techniques that he was working with like the movement of hair and clothing in wind that he was starting with kiki's delivery service really is perfected in this one i thought Hmm. and the movement of the haku dragon in that sequence was was so realistic it almost seemed like borderline rotoscoped it was it was very cool looking for us non-film nerds what's a rotoscope a rotoscope is uh (laughs) there's some cartoons that are done like this when they shoot actual film of people doing stuff and then they draw over it it has a very unique look and if you ever see it you'll be like oh yeah i could tell that that's what that is but it's not done all that often in feature length stuff but those link later movies like Waking Life and Scanner Darkly do it. Oh, okay. So we were talking a little bit about how Yubaba and Zeniba and who's the villain, but who is the villain of this movie, would you say? Yubaba. I, of course, agree, but pretend for a moment like I'm a uh, strict capitalist. So I got my tie on, I'm kicking puppies. What? Well, that's what capitalists do, right? Is it? I'm pretty sure. But if you were of a, like a straight-up capitalist mindset, Yubaba doesn't do anything wrong. She's just She gives a contract, and she's just honoring her contract. She's providing room and board for work. Then I don't know who the bad person is. Well, we're not capitalists, so I think she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she definitely is the most like relentless and like one track um so i i think that she's the bad one i'd agree with you but i think pretty much everyone in this movie is in the middle and just kind of doing what they need to do right like you were talking about the baby being bad because yeah the baby's like i'm gonna break your arm if you don't play with me Uh but it's also just a baby yeah true and then once the baby is put into that mouse body, has somebody treating it well, yeah, then the baby starts acting nice as well. Yeah. It's like everybody. If you're nice to them and you treat them well, they'll be nice to you. Except for capitalists. Except for capitalists. Because they just want the money. Yeah. We knew I was going to say something like that sooner or later. I wait for it, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> And even characters like Haku at first were like, oh, he's saving her. And then we're like, oh, no, he's the henchman for the bad person. He's actually bad. And same with Lin. Lin starts off being rude to her, because, but she's just like playing that up for, for other people 
just like we were talking about Kamaji, who seems like a villain because mm-hmm. he's he's very scary and we don't have any context for this world. So we think anything that looks that scary is going to be bad. Yeah. But it turns out he's just doing his job. He was just busy. Yeah. That's the only thing that was wrong he's with him at the beginning. He needed to like get his work done. Yeah. <laughs> And then throughout, he's a very encouraging figure and is actually instrumental in her escape from from the bathhouse. Right, yeah. Which is, it's like a nice turn almost because you make this assumption and then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, and since he was kind of her first interaction outside of Haku, Mm -hmm. I like that they didn't make him the big evil guy off the beginning, Mm -hmm. that they don't meet Yubaba right then. And I like that he's not some sort of fairy godmother type of like, okay, now you're in here. Here's what you have to do. She kind of has to figure things out on her own. She does get help along the way, but she kind of earns that help. Right. She is good to those people and they are good to her. Mm-hmm. And that's how she is able to learn the, uh, the, learn the rules of this new world for her. Which maybe is Miyazaki's advice for children entering the adult world. Yeah. Yeah. What about No Face? Do you consider him the villain? Um, I don't, I don't know how to categorize No Face because at the beginning, No Face seemed like a friend. He was bringing her tokens and like trying to help her. Mm -hmm. And then, and then he kind of like went off the rails and went a little crazy. I think No Face is just a reflection of others, right? At the beginning, he seems very, maybe creepy, but, but benign, not evil Mm -hmm. in any way. And then he learns that money will get him what he wants. So then he's like giving everyone money because he's like, hey, this is what we're supposed to do, right? And then eventually Chihiro says, oh, no, thank you. And then he's like, wait, money doesn't get you everything you want? And then he turns into the other end of capitalism. And rather than buying everything, he's just consuming everything, right? right? So he becomes a consumer and starts eating everything. But when he is treated well, he presents well. He's just a reflection of what's going on around him for yeah. the most part. And I guess maybe that's a fitting name, No Face, because he doesn't really have much characteristic of his own. Mm-hmm. He's just a mirror of what's everyone going else. On around him. Yeah. yeah. I thought No Face was kind of cool. And I love that moment where Chihiro leaves the door open because it's just like a nice thing a kid would do. Yeah. Like you think about lost dogs or like stray cats that you might see in the neighborhood and kids want to bring them inside and take care of them. And that's kind of what she's doing with No Face. And that little act of kindness is what makes No Face try to help her out as much as yeah, he can, right? Yeah, By getting her those tokens and things like that. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to see the progression of No Face from like crazy capitalist all the way down to like really nice, helpful friend. Yeah, well, it's, it's the corruption of an uh, innocent soul by capitalism. Whoa. Yeah, man. Whoa. We're going to go there. Don't worry. Okay. I know most of you are going to hate it, but Is this why you have happen. 15 pages of notes? I did. Uh, after watching the movie, sat down and thought about it and wrote stuff down, and I wrote 15 pages of stuff. I've gotten that down to six pages now, and we're through most of it already. Oh, so okay. it's not going to be, it's not going to get too heavy. Not much more heavy. It already is a little. I think everyone was worried it was going to be like a seven-hour podcast on Spirited. Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> but uh, for you out there, I will not. A deep dive. Oh, that'd be my dream. But yeah, I think we can say that no face is just a reflection and is neither inherently good nor bad. But I think we can also say that Chihiro is a force of good, and all of the good actions she does seem to have a ripple effect, right? She does one good thing for one person, and that kind of just keeps going on and is what leads to her ultimate uh, escape, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. She kind of earns her way out by being like a good worker or like a good friend. Yeah. And we'll get into it, but I do want to distinguish that she's not just a hard worker because that would kind of fit into a lot of the pro-capitalism stuff of like, just do your job and you're going to win all the time. Because this system in this bathhouse is set up for her to fail and not be able to succeed, right? She has to go above and beyond just being a hard worker and do acts of like altruistic kindness. Mm -hmm. And that's how she's able to, to break this cycle. Right. But let's talk a little bit about the characters you mentioned. Uh, 
Yubaba, who we could say is probably the most straight up evil one. Yes, yeah. But even then, she is balanced still because all these other characters go back and forth yeah. there, depending on the situation. But she is bad for the most part. But that's kind of only half of her we learn because Zaniba is her twin sister and is mm-hmm. kind of her Glenda Right yeah, from yeah. Wizard of Oz, another one. Girl of that age yeah. goes, it's not a hole this time, but a tornado. Mystical world comes back more worldly. Yeah. Huh. It's a real trope. It's a whole thing. I didn't even realize that. This is a lot of Wizard, Wizard of, of Oz-ish. Oz-ish. Yeah. She meets magical creatures. She learns how to like help people and kind of hold her own. And yeah. That just makes me more upset. I did read a few reviews before... Like, after three, I got upset and stopped reading them because everyone's like, well, this is just weird for the sake of weird. But they only say that about something that's not American or not Western. Right. Because Wizard of Oz is just as weird. Alice in Wonderland is way more weird. But those mm-hmm. ones we're fine with. But this, we're like, ah, why is that thing there? But you wouldn't ask the same questions if it's an American film. Very true. So we have Yubaba as our one mostly evil character. And one of the ways she controls people is by taking their names away. Mm-hmm. What did you think about all that? Um, it's very, like, dehumanizing almost. Which, like, I know that most of the people in this movie aren't humans. So that's... Yeah, but humanity in the not in, yeah, in the species sense. Yeah, yeah, not in the species sense. But um, I think she's just trying to turn everybody into, like, a little worker ant by taking away their name and... Like Haiku says, he doesn't remember his name and he doesn't know where his home is. So he doesn't like ever leave because he just doesn't remember a time before. And I think that's what Yubaba is trying to do is take everyone's names, take everyone's like past away so that their only thing is like the present now and working for her. Have you been reading Marx as well? No. Oh, well, you're getting into it. <laughs> so you're leading the charge on this one. Yeah, their names and taking them away is definitely a way to make them, you're not this unique individual. Yeah. You are now whatever your job is. There's another little thing I wanted to point out about the names. So Chihiro literally means a thousand, but there's like different ways to say it in Japanese. Oh. So it means a thousand, but it also has connotations of seeking and searching and asking questions. Mm-hmm. And then the word sen means a thousand. Right. Nothing else. Okay. So Yubaba, who is this kind of capitalist figure, changes her name, but it still has the same value, the same monetary value, because it meant a thousand before, but it means a thousand now. But she's taking away all of that extra stuff about seeking the truth and asking questions. Right. And like, you're not that anymore. You're just this number. You're just your dollar figure. And that's another part about the the dehumanization right right and there's this idea of reification and earlier today you came in and i was on the computer and i was reading voraciously and sweating and (laughs) telling you about this because i had used the word reification a lot in the past and i always thought of it to mean when someone's identity is just their job you're like oh who's this that's the mailman not, this is Steve. He has a family. Yeah. It's the mailman. That you is your, your whole job. identity. Yeah. You are your job. And in the end, it turns out I was kind of right, but it's so much more complex than that. Reification is the idea of something immaterial being treated as a material thing. So, like, happiness. Right. You're like, where do I find my happiness? And you're thinking of it literally? I don't think most people do that, but maybe um, the market. You're like, oh, the market took a crash. There's no literal market. Yeah. But we kind of think of it that way. It's just the way that we measure things. Yeah. So it has like, to make it easier for us to conceive of, we think of it as a literal place almost. Mm. Uh, But reification in Marx's writing was the idea of treating labor as a commodity. And it's exemplified by the reification of the individual. So meaning that you are just a thing. Labor is a thing. You are a workforce. You're not individual people. And it gets into, in literatures where I usually came across this, and it's the idea of someone being no more than their job. 
And that's exactly what Yubaba is doing to all of these people. And it's a technique that some people say, this is how you get a constructive workforce. But then people like me are like, this is how you destroy humanity, <laughs> right? That this person is nothing more than than their job. Mm-hmm. And to go along with that, because I my Japanese is very minimal, but from what I could find out, lots of the names just mean the job. Like, Kamaji means boiler man. That's all it means. It's not a name. Oh. Well, I guess it is his name, but his name is his job. His name is literally boiler man. Uh, Yubaba and Zaniba also mean just, like, money witch and things like that. So they Money witch. They just are their jobs. I want to be a money witch. No, you don't. Or maybe you do. Who am I to judge you? But I would rather you not be a money witch. <laughs> That's not what you signed up for. No, you should, could be like um, a cookie witch. You'd like that. Lasagna witch. I was an eggs benedict witch today. There you go. Yeah. But that's just an idea that comes through this a lot, that they're taking their names away to make them just part of this perfect workforce and perfect in the sense of you don't have any personality. You're just going to do what I tell you. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting how like basic their characters become when you know what their their names mean. But like in... Our world, too, in the Western world, so many last names are just, it's just your job, right? Right. All your Smiths and Coopers and whatnots. Way back in the day, yeah. Well, I guess we're, we've been kind of talking about it this whole time, so let's get into it. Let's get into how I contend that this is an anti-capitalist movie. And you could argue about if, is this anti-capitalist? Is this anti-Westernization? Is it old versus new, but I think it's safe to say that it's kind of the same. Not in that Western means capitalist and old means East and new means West. That's not what I'm trying to say, but would you agree with me for the sake of all of this argument that anti-Western and anti-capitalist things, although not the same, are definitely inherently linked and they're going to be symbolized the same way in literature and in this film a lot? Is that fair? Yeah, I think I agree with you. Let's start off with the old versus new, because at the beginning of this, we get to see her parents, and they mm-hmm. are very Western. Yeah. They are wearing, a, like, he's wearing a polo shirt. They're driving an Audi. Huh. And he makes a point of putting an Audi label on it. So in a movie like this, to have an one actual brand seems very strange. So I feel like that has to be a very specific choice by uh, Miyazaki also side note I loved when he was braking and he slams down the brake and you can see the brake shutter because that model did do that oh really he's like he's so so specific and particular in all of this stuff that's funny I like that though that like little things that you can pick out if you're familiar with whatever you're watching Mm -hmm. and I think there's a kind of a simplistic view that you could say that her human world is the new world And this spirit world is representative of an older traditional way of doing things. Because even the architecture is more, uh, I think it's all Meiji era stuff. Again, my Japanese history is not great, but I think that's correct. (laughs) And in the end, Chihiro is able to kind of find the balance between the two. So Mm -hmm. I think that's like the nicest, simplest, cleanest reading of all of this. But then when we get into the more anti capitalist anti-consumerist things like they're going to wherever they're going because the dad has a new job right and they get stuck in this mess because he's saying like oh it doesn't matter we can go up here i have four-wheel drive we can eat here i have credit cards and cash Uh so he's very explicitly saying like i have money therefore i can do what i want exactly yeah this is going to solve all of the problems and i don't think it's a really hard reading when you look at someone who says, I have money, I can do what I want, and then they eat so much that they become a pig. Right? Like that one's spelling it out pretty pretty much. It's like, very obvious what they're doing with it. Yeah, they're doing the like he's such a consumer that he is now a mindless pig. Mm-hmm. And then we have Yubaba who's kind of the the leader of it and she's more stylistically Western as well. Her mm-hmm. clothing Although I think the Yubaba character is taken from Eastern European folklore as well. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I know in reading some old fairy tales, there were a lot of Russian ones where it was something Baba 
Because I think that just means grandmother, right? Yes. And that's another thing which I don't fully understand, but there's so many words in this that are taken from different languages, but then they're words that also mean something in Japanese, like Yubaba. And the characters, when they're walking through the food stalls and the market, it has the Chinese character, which is the first letter of one thing, which you'd think would be the food that's there. But the hiragana and the katakana, which modifies Chinese characters, that part is blocked. So you only get that first character, which could mean like spring rolls, but it also could mean like death coming soon. Oh. Because it, it's just showing the first letter, but he's clever enough to to do that kind of in the background. I know this is a bad example because I can't read Japanese because it's it's very hard to read. Is it? Oh, because it's all of the Chinese characters plus three other types of script. Two other. Oh, that I can, sounds insane. Yeah. That's I only crazy. knew certain foods and exits bathroom. That's all you need. That's all you need. But yeah, Yubaba's place is much more European in its mm-hmm. design. And she is definitely like the, the cap- evil capitalist of the movie, right? Right. All she's concerned about is profit over all the people. I think the way they present Yubaba, like she's always counting her jewels. Right. And like she only really cares about her baby and that the business is running smoothly mm-hmm. and that's it. So it re- it's really easy to write her off as just like an evil character, but she does have a little bit more to her. Yeah, because she does care about her baby. She's trying to be a good mother, but doing a bad job of it because she kind of tells the baby like, oh, there's germs out there. Don't go out. Yeah. Which I'm sure is a commentary on something that's over my head. (laughs) (laughs) And Lynn is one of the most human looking characters, but she seems to care about money the least. Like Maybe they're saying that there's some sort of link between greed and losing your humanity, which is very evident with the parents, but maybe a little bit throughout the rest of the movie as well. Yeah, I could see that. What do you think? Do you think all this anti-capitalist stuff is just me, or do you see it in there as well? Um, I think I saw it. I don't know that I like recognized it as what it was, but the more you pointed out, the more I realized that, yeah, that's kind of the same way that I was viewing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but not like putting that label on it because I didn't really like notice as much as you did, I think. I think we thought the same things, but maybe you just didn't come to the same end conclusion because when you were talking about, oh, it seems like this and this and this, and I was like, yeah, that's all marks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think I just didn't label it. Yeah. Samantha, secret Karl Marx fan. Is that a bad thing? No. Okay. I mean, well, the secret, but you should be out and proud. Oh, okay. (laughs) And then in this one as well, there's a big push for environmentalist thinking. That's kind of in most of Miyazaki's work. It's not in the forefront as much as I think the capitalist stuff is, but it's definitely here as well. Mm -hmm. Were you able to guess that Haku was a river spirit? No. That one I remember I did guess because we've seen him in his spirit form in that big dog dragon. Yeah, dragon dog. (laughs) The old dragon dog. Yeah, classic dragon dog. Oh, that's a good baseball team name. Uh The Baltimore Dragon Dogs. (laughs) Yeah. But when we have what's called the stink spirit at first, Uh and then someone goes, that's not a stink spirit. And then they pull out all of the the bike and all of this other garbage there, right? And then it says thank you or something like that and turns into a big dragon dog and leaves yeah so then from that we can see that this wasn't a stink spirit this was a river spirit the river had been so polluted to the point that it was just grotesque and we thought it was Mm -hmm. a stink spirit and then we got to see it fly out and we see it's a river spirit and it looks very much like haku's so that's the point where it's like, oh, I get it. He's going to be a river spirit. But why is he still stuck here? Why can't he leave? And then we find out that he was the spirit of a river that has since been covered over and that they build apartment buildings. That's why he's lost because... Because his river's gone. Yeah. It's there, but not really. Not like it used mm-hmm. to be. And his name's been stolen. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the name of the river being stolen is maybe symbolic of... Uh, of just covering up all of that stuff. Well, I guess not symbolic because it literally was yeah, covered up. Yeah, it's literally. But in the sense of forgetting about things like that, thinking that this river doesn't have any meaning for us anymore and forgetting about it, just as his name was stolen from him. That's so sad. Yeah, yeah. 
This movie is a lot sadder than I realized upon watching. It is, and I feel like most of Miyazaki stuff has that to it. There is a layer of melancholy to it, but I think it's it's optimistic, though, in the end. In the end, she cleans that river, right? Mm-hmm. She pulls all that stuff out, and her enthusiasm, her caring nature overcomes that. Right. And it's the same with Haku. Like she, Haku finds his name. He finds out what river he was, and we think, returns to the river. Mm-hmm. And there is a little distinction because I've watched it in Japanese as well with the English subtitles. And in the Japanese version, they say the river has been built on top of. Like we covered it and built these things on top of the river. While in English, we say the river was filled in. And filled in seems so much more permanent that like that river doesn't exist anymore. But when you say they've built on top of it, mm-hmm. it's still there. Right. And I have a little bit of history living in Japan and Korea, but there, were, there was this big project, the huge one in Seoul. There was this river that had been covered over for, for decades and decades, and now it's one of the biggest tourist attractions of Seoul because they've opened it up again, and they have all sorts of like festivals on the water down ah, there, and it had been covered up for so long. That's so, so fun. So that is something that people are moving towards more, as well in Edmonton. Mill Creek, mostly covered up, but we're working on uh, bringing it to the surface again. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, so things like that are happening. And just as Haku finds his name and goes back, I think there was that sadness, but it's ultimately optimistic, I'd say. Do you agree? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think it's like righting the wrongs of the past. Yeah, definitely. Hmm? Well, since we're getting to that point, let's talk about the ending of the movie. We often talk about movies that I force you to watch, uh, (laughs) get you to watch, where they have more ambiguous endings and whether or not you like it as much as I do. What did you think about the ending of this? And if it is an ambiguous ending at all? Um, I don't know. I feel like I was a little bit sad that she left all her friends behind and went back to, like, the real world. She really seemed to make herself a place there. But at the same time, it was good that she was able to go home. I think I didn't have the same sadness of her leaving because I was going through this kind of anti-capitalist reading of the film. So Mm -hmm. she's extracting herself from that situation where she has no future. So although she is leaving those few nice characters that we liked so much, I feel like most of them have been set up for further success. Like No Face is going to a place where he's being treated well and he can contribute. Mm -hmm. Haku is going back to the river. And she, although I guess we forget about Lin. What happens to Yubaba? Does she just stay doing the same thing? I think she just stays. Nothing really happens to her. But she's learned a lesson, though, because there is the bit about when she finds out, has anything here changed? And she realizes that her baby is not actually her baby. I'm not 100% sure how her story, like... I'd have to rewatch because I kind of didn't even really think about her. But it seems like she's learned something. Yeah. I'll have to rewatch and look at that part. Yeah. But I think it's safe to say that overall, Chihiro has left that world in a better position than when she arrived. Yes, agree. Do you think the ending was ambiguous? Do you think that maybe the spirit world existed or yes, it did or no, it didn't? I think it did. And I think that only like children can go there. Oh, maybe. I think it's like it's like a Dorothy or Chihiro or like Totoro. I think it's specifically children go there. I might. I agree, but with like a caveat, maybe. Okay. I think maybe the innocent or the well-intentioned because their parents go. It just treats them very differently mm-hmm. because they are this consuming culture. Right. That they get swept up in that. So whatever, just like with No Face, right? I think the spirit world does not have an intention. It is there to maybe amplify what you are. Uh-huh. They were consumers. They became pigs. With Chihiro, she is well-intentioned. And because of all of this, she is able to uh, improve the lives of so many. Right. 
But I definitely do think that, yes, she was, in fact, in the spirit world. And I think I like how non-ambiguous the ending is because she still has that hair tie and they get out to the car and her dad's like, wow, why is all this dust and leaves all over the car? I think they've been gone for a, a week or two weeks or whatever it's been. Hmm. Yeah. And I think they're going to get back to the house and everyone's going to be like, where were you guys? And yeah. they'll have no answer for you, it. Like, showed up. You didn't show up for work. Yeah. I know I'm always the one who's like, oh, I love the ambiguity in certain things and I love it being open-ended and we can take what we want. But in this case, I do like that they, I think they concretely say that all happened because it just seems more in line with the spirit and the feel of this movie. Because Mm -hmm. if this was all in her mind, I think the lessons wouldn't be there as much. They'd be there for her, but... Maybe she wouldn't be able to extrapolate to her parents and to the world around her mm-hmm. and learn these lessons about putting things ab- above profit, about taking care of the environment. I think having it be real makes those lessons more real as well. Huh. Okay. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that's, I think it's really interesting to see this same kind of journey from the parents' point of view as from Chihiro's point of view. Yeah, because the parents forget everything. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's probably a, a telling thing as well, that the consumers, the older generation, those who follow things blindly don't learn from their mistakes, perhaps. Yeah, they're beyond teaching about why that's bad. Capitalist pigs, man. You're shaking your fist, but I was hoping you would say that into the mic and be like, capitalist pigs. So then I could be like, oh, remember that time you called everyone capitalist pigs? That was great. No, I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to quietly shake my fist. So you're you're on the side of the capitalists. No. Gotcha. You heard it here. Samantha He's Her heroes are Ronald Reagan and the Monopoly guy. <laughs> I love when you just run with something <laughs> and uh, tag me with the worst possible thing. Oh, that's right. You were very Marxist earlier. So I was. You love Karl Marx. You heard it here, everyone. Samantha He's loves Karl Marx. You said, yep. You're agreeing? I don't know. I I (laughs) emulated a lot of his philosophies today. Whoa. Yeah, man. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Any other little things on this movie? I don't know. It was a very cool movie to watch um, because it didn't have super Western kind of looking architecture and stuff with like the sliding doors and the way that they were sleeping and putting away their beds. Like it felt very um not not western it felt very like what we imagined Jap- japan would be like so i thought that was really neat to watch and then um i loved all the creatures i think yeah the we can't the, say enough about yeah. how great the character designs in this movie are even just the background creatures like walking into the baths and stuff who don't say anything you just like you just see them like the big radish spirit yeah like it's so cool the things that he designs that are just like almost throwaway characters because you just see them walk by in a bathrobe one time. Yeah. Or even uh, Chihiro, which is the human character, but her character design, her facial expressions, I really think it is the peak of the stuff that he started off with his earlier things. Mm-hmm. I think, although I love the maybe more innocent childlike animation of My Neighbor Totoro, and that fits that movie, you can see how far that style has come and how much more refined it is in this movie. Right, yeah. Agree. (laughs) I love that we get a love story that's not a romantic love story because Chihiro loves Haku, right? She loves him. And Mm -hmm. she says that, and it's true love that's able to break that curse right and in any other movie we would have to have like a big kiss then but no she loves the river i don't think i'm uh, reaching too much to say that there's your environmentalism that she has true love for the river so much so that it breaks the spell yeah yeah i do like that this age they're not having romantic notions about people that they meet Yeah, because even in a lot of other cartoons, the characters are very young, but then they have romantic love and it seems weird. Maybe I just wasn't falling in love with everyone when I was eight, but a lot of other cartoon characters seems like they are. I think it's just unnecessary. I think it's unnecessary and it kind of takes away from like the girl powerness of 
of these Miyazaki movies. Yeah, I think it's a crutch, too. Yeah. Like, if you just say, like, oh, they're in love, the end. It's just so much easier, and as an audience, you know all that entails mm-hmm. so you don't have to spell it out with actual storytelling you no. can just say love the end love here you go yeah yeah i uh i liked that they left her as a little girl she wasn't doing like things that were kind of beyond her years like falling in love and you know and i love her reactions how true to someone of that age they were mm-hmm. like there's that one instance where very early on she's very scared and she's going down those stairs yeah and then she breaks one and it makes a big noise and she screams and runs down all of them <laughs> yeah that was which pretty funny. i did all the time yeah. as a child you'd be going real slow and then something would happen and you'd run right up yeah. the stairs yeah that was such a good uh, a good child moment. It was. It was very cute. And the way that she was going down the stairs, like, mm-hmm. on her butt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that Miyazaki keeps them children. So I feel like we're at the point in the podcast where we've kind of wrapped up our thoughts on the movie. But one thing that we wanted to start doing for the next 100 episodes is giving recommendations on what you can watch if you really enjoyed this one. So because this was Indy's movie, Indy's going to give a couple recommendations on things that if you really enjoyed Spirited Away that you'll also enjoy uh, watching that are kind of in the similar vein. One of which I think would be My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah, that's definitely the first one that comes to mind. And I think I said it already right off the top of the show. But this movie seems to fit directly between My Neighbor Totoro and Pan's Labyrinth. Hmm. Because Totoro is all innocent, happy, good times, nothing scary. Except if you consider a cat bus scary. I don't. I think it's the greatest thing ever. I think it's kind of gross. Okay. But it's definitely a light movie for any age, right? Yes. Spirited Away, a little bit spookier. There's definitely scarier imagery. Not a horror by any means, but there's some spooky stuff in there, which is right in the middle. And then I think on the far end is Pan's Labyrinth, which mm-hmm. is has a lot of horror elements, can be downright scary. But all three of these movies deal with a lot of the same subject matter mm-hmm. in varying degrees of intensity, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, intensity is probably the right word. So My Neighbor Totoro is a good one to watch. It's on Netflix in Canada, or I think HBO Max for you Americans. And we did an episode on it. It's number 10. You can go back and listen to that. And Pan's Labyrinth is a great Guillermo del Toro movie. And it is scary. So this one is not for kids, but it is kind of a grown-up version of Spirited Away in a lot of ways. So a lot of these same elements these allegories of a spirit world or an underground world reflecting the reality of that girl and her growing up and dealing with the world around her that's all in here as well we talked about that back on episode 36 you can check it out there and then i think another one i might throw in is maybe Coraline. okay yeah Coraline again is a kids movie but definitely has some spooky elements to it so you can check that out as well and then i think we both talked about the parallels between this and both alice in wonderland and wizard of oz right also great movies although i haven't seen alice in wonderland in a long time and not that weird helena bottom carter johnny depp one because yeah i think i've only seen like newer alice in wonderlands and i didn't like them so that one is so bad it's so bad bad. oh but that's not what we're talking about. So those are my recommendations. Do you have any final thoughts to wrap up? Spirited Away, your second Miyazaki movie. Do you uh, love it yet? I love it. Yes. <laughs> I I definitely think that everyone should see this. I think this is a very good movie to watch like, with your kids. Um, and I think that you should you know, have a nice little family night, maybe have a tasty meal and watch this movie and just be safe. Just be safe. Just be safe. Yeah, I agree. I, of course, love this movie. I think it is one of the best animated films of all time. And I've I've seen a lot. I'm not just saying that off the top of my head. I really do think it is that good. I think it's a great movie if you just want to watch with your kids and see a fun story with a really great main character Mm -hmm. and see her go on this adventure if you want to stop it at that level awesome it's great for that if you want to just look at amazing imagery and beautiful animation 
awesome. It's great for that as well. If you want to be a big nerd and go into all of these meanings, which I think are are very intentional, or if you want to look way into it too much, it's a great movie for that too, because I think there are just so many layers for, um, from most of Miyazaki's work that you can appreciate it on whichever one you want. And it doesn't mean you're missing something if you mm-hmm. don't care about the other stuff. It's great just to put on and watch as a story of a girl who goes into a different world and goes on an adventure. It well, doesn't need to be more than that. That is enough. Deeper. And that is great. Mm-hmm. I think there is a lot more to it as well, which kind of fills out the experience for me. But if you're not into that, you don't need to go into all those things. It's great on the surface as well. And I think just an all-time great film. So go check out Spirited Away from 2001, directed by Hayao Miyazaki. We watched it on Netflix. Samantha, you watched the English dub, which I think was very good as well. It was very good, yeah. You definitely don't lose anything. Yeah, and I think they do a very good job. There's only like a couple of lines that are a little questionable if you've watched it in Japanese as well. But overall, both are amazing and both have really good voice cast. So either way, you're going to think it's a great movie. Yeah. Well, I think we're about done for today. Yeah. Episode 100. Wow. We didn't even really talk about that too much. No, we didn't. But we'll talk about it next week. When we do an award show? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to start doing these every 50 episodes. We'll discuss what we've seen over the last 50 weeks. Mm -hmm. We'll give out awards. What kind of awards are we giving out? Um, Best pet. Oh, yes. Best human. Best human. Best couple. Worst couple. Yes. Thank you, Kelsey Kendrick, for throwing that one out there. movie world you would like to live in most yes yeah oh maybe maybe this one no it's pretty scary movie thing you would like to have maybe oh that's a good one yeah well we'll be talking about all of that next week and then after that we'll get back into our regularly scheduled stuff where we'll each have a thing of the week and samantha will tell us what we'll be watching for the big episode after yeah hope it's great as great as spirited away (laughs) (laughs) no promises all right what could be this great true nothing i give up (laughs) okay we'll see you next week everyone bye everyone happy 100 episodes go review us and all that rate review subscribe that's it yeah bye